Hi, I'm Mary. And I'm Christy. And we're angel investors in Budapest, working together on Fintech Factory, an early stage fintech investment fund backed by MKB Bank. Each month, we get together to talk about investments and innovation in the financial sector and beyond with experts from around the world. In today's episode, we invited Thierry Zois. He's part of the investment team at the Dutch venture capital fund Finch Capital. Thierry joined Finch Capital in May 2018 from Cedars, where he was responsible for setting up the office in Amsterdam covering the Benelux. Prior to Cedars, he worked at Deliveroo in the international operations team, which was responsible for market expansion. And before that, he co-founded Fitpal, a company that tackled Chathu's obesity, which was linked to console gaming. Um, Thierry is a Luxembourg national with Greek origins and speaks German, French, Greek, English, and Luxembourgish. Welcome, Thierry. It's great to have you on our show. Thank you for having us. Yeah. So as I said in my intro, you started out as an entrepreneur. You worked at a startup, then you moved into the VC side. So can you tell us a little bit more about your journey? Like, so why did you decide to make the transition from, you know, the startup ecosystem to the world of venture capital? Well, to be honest, the world of venture capital is, is still pretty much a startup ecosystem, first and foremost, because we're still investing in startups. And second of all, um, I, I joined Finch uh, at the start of their second fund. So, okay, they might be a bit more mature than the first fund, but still um, uh, pretty much operated like a startup. And uh, for me, it made a lot of sense to go into this direction, given uh, my Cedars experience, uh, where I'm not sure if you know Cedars, but Basically, it's an equity crowdfunding platform, so an investment platform where we matched VC funding with the crowd. So companies could join the, the platform and raise capital from both sources. And uh, given you know, that was between operations and investment, and we had very close contact with uh, startups and VCs, uh, the leap into VC made a lot of sense for me. Yeah, we actually had um, a couple of startups from the fintech lab portfolio do around on Cedars. Um, so we know, I know, I've no- known of Cedars for a while. It's a really cool platform, and they have a really great deal for UK investors. Yeah, I think there's like tax adva- advantages, right? For exactly, yes, yes. Uh, the vision is great. I mean, basically, it's uh, modernizing and democratizing the the whole investment space, so allowing everybody to be the, have the opportunity to become a VC or a business angel themselves by investing as little as 10 euros. Now, of course, uh, what's the return uh, factor on a 10-euro ticket? But it's just to set the bar so low to give the opportunity to anyone and to be like, hey, you know, it's not reserved to a certain asset class, but anyone can join it. And then obviously over the years, they, they developed a nice solution, especially around uh, the secondary uh, market, but also from a tax perspective for UK investors from an EIS and SEIS perspective as well. So you set up the office, the Cedars office in Amsterdam? Yeah, that's correct. So um, uh, it was actually a two-man show initially. Uh, so <laughs> it was myself and my ex-colleague. Um, uh, we set it up the office and was actually the first satellite office for of, of Cedars on the continent. So they were pretty much in the beginning focused on the UK and it was their, so to speak, their first pilot project to uh, tackle and to get European, uh, as in continental startups, also towards the platform. And that was basically together with my ex-colleague, our role to do so. And how did that go? I mean, I I think Cedars still has a really strong presence in the UK. I didn't even realize (laughs) that there was an EU office already. Although I'm not totally yeah. up to speed <laughs> on the platform, but yeah, now now they have a couple. So there was uh, there is Amsterdam and, and and Berlin and Portugal, 
And uh, yeah, initially it was a bit tricky given that uh, the main focus was on the UK support for uh, for for the European sideshow, so to speak, was uh, was there, but not fully. Uh, so uh, we were pretty much on our own out there, which was a great experience because it really felt like being an entrepreneur again in that way, just with the security of uh, having a salary at the end of the month. So uh, you could say an intrapreneur. And uh, it was very much tricky because everything was a bit unknown, right? So regulation, law, tax, structures, uh, et cetera, et cetera, which the UK teams were not familiar with. So it was a massive learning curve, both for the local team here, but also for the UK team over there. I did that for roughly uh, two and a half years. And actually, we were quite successful in the beginning and and managed to get uh, some heavy campaigns towards the platform, uh, just to name one, for example, Box, uh, which is like a trading application here in the Netherlands, as in headquartered in the Netherlands, now also present across Europe. They joined uh, the platform and did like 5 million round, if I, if I remember correctly. So that was a massive success, right? Because back then, the liquidity on the platform was not as strong as today, uh, especially for uh, non-SCIS and EIS deals. So a lot of assumptions or a lot of the fears that we had around oh, our investors going to buy in into this, you know, given that there is not this tax incentive, is it actually going to happen, Mm -hmm. was actually proven wrong. And we hit on all our KPIs and, uh, yeah, it was quite a success for the first two years. And, uh, yeah, so so I left on the high, you can say. And what made you decide to leave on the high? It was uh, fortunate because we were performing so well and yet still the support or the money was not flowing in. And I kind of get it, you know, uh, they were more like thinking, hey, this was this a one pony trick? Or can you repeat this again? And uh, I was a bit young, and like, I put a lot of energy in it. And, and being like, hey, uh, being put again in the same situation after so much hard work, to be sent, hey, do this again, I was a bit frustrated. And uh, I was very much intrigued also by the VC uh, landscape, because over the years, I learned more and more about that space. And hence the reason why I said, hey, why not leave on a good note, on a good term and join a new adventure? Mm-hmm. And can you tell us a little bit about Finch Capital? Yeah, sure. So Finch is a, is a Dutch fund. Uh, it's headquartered in, in Amsterdam with offices in London and in Jakarta. Um, reason why they're set up that way is because they invest throughout Europe and Southeast Asia. So that is also quite intriguing because there are not that many players who do that. Typically, they either invest in certain regions or across a certain continent. And if they are doing multiple continents, it's generally leading towards the US. So I really like the way that they were making a bridge between Europe and Asia and, and vice versa. And uh, yeah, so Finch is a fintech VC focusing on everything that has to do with banking, tech, intratech type of companies. And we focus mainly on everything which is Series A slash B uh, type of rounds. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, we do ticket sizes anywhere between two and eight million with a sweet spot at 5 million. So uh, yeah, we lead rounds. Um, we're very hands-on, have done now roughly 40 investments across three funds. So the first fund was 40, second fund was 100, and this fund here is going to be 150 million. We actually recently closed it like less than two months ago. So um, uh, big kudos to the team. And um, yeah, that's uh, pretty much Finch Capital in a, in a nutshell. Yeah, congrats for the 150 million fund uh, that you just recently announced. But what has changed compared to last year in terms of investments? Uh, What was the impact of COVID? What we've seen is that overall, the companies that are hot 
became actually even hotter. So post-COVID or pre-COVID, it doesn't really matter. I think the superstars, so to speak, still received a lot of money and if not even more. There was, of course, a couple of months of complete shutdown. So it was more companies that were suffering from a sales perspective. And so from our perspective, from the fintech side, because we're dealing a lot with financial institutions, what we saw is that some financial institutions were leapfrogging uh, during that moment. And those that did were generally the ones that were already more innovative and more prone to have change within the organization, right? And uh, those that were a little bit more skeptical and like taking it already slower, even slower than normal incumbents do, they just widened the gap basically in terms of contracts. So some startups were lucky. So it's, it, it was a bit of a hit and miss, right? Uh, did you sign up or did you partner up with, um, with the ones that were leapfrogging or with them uh, that were widening the gap? And so that was a trend that we saw within the fintech space. Um, uh, and those obviously that, uh, that were leapfrogging, they had record month after record months. Then the other phenomenon uh, which was uh, present was, uh, as you might have seen as well, is the whole trading industry. I think uh, a lot of uh, people didn't know what to do anymore at home. So they got bored and they said, hey, let me invest in the stock exchange. And um, uh, all of those platforms such as Box, Robinhood, eToro, uh, you name it, you get it, were booming and having record months after record months, given also the volatility. Uh, it's, it's at the end of the day their best friend and the more volatile the market, the more money they make and the more people get excited to log in on a daily basis and see if their trade has gone up or not. So yeah, these I would say are the major trends. I, I mean, there, there are way uh, a lot more trends. Uh, I could be speaking for, for, for a very long time, but we at Finch, we actually released a report on COVID. So that was during the pandemic and, and with our prognosis of where this everything is going to go by industry, for example, intratech or prop tech, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, so far, so far, we were actually quite accurate. Yeah, I want to hear more about that report in a second. But I wanted to also ask if if you feel like, you know, the COVID pandemic, did that expand your focus geographically? I mean, did you guys make investments in a little broader region? Or I don't know if you have a geographic focus at Finch, but yeah, I'm wondering, because that's something that we saw a lot too, that, you know, the world became a lot smaller and all of a sudden VCs could invest in companies a bit farther outside their normal sphere. That is true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, we saw that as well, that the companies, uh, the VCs that were investing in certain industries were also open now, more open to invest in others. From our DNA, we were already investing throughout Europe and Southeast Asia. So it is quite broad. I mean, we have deals um, uh, going from Spain to Poland, to Czech Republic, to Germany, uh, UK, Netherlands. I mean, you name it, you get it. So uh, from that perspective, that was never really a boundary for us. And can you tell us a little bit more about like what are you looking for when investing in a company? So with the new fund, we changed a bit our strategy compared to the previous funds. We identified or we believe that in the future going forward, there is going to be less and less large M&A transactions. And I now solely speak for Europe. I don't take US into consideration. So by large, I mean anything uh, north of 250 million up to 1 million. However, we do believe that there is going to be an increase of, of M&A transactions anywhere between, let's say, 50 million all the way up to 250 million. Why? Is because of the corona, the incumbents uh, got a big slap in their face. You know, the, the insurance companies of this world, banks, asset managers, et cetera, et cetera. 
simply put that their tech stack was not up to date, that they were not as efficient, you know, and like they definitely got shaken up, you know, and waken up that they had to do something in order to tackle this issue. And the best way for them to do that is to acquire technology or IP via acquisitions, right? But they're not going to go out there and make like these mega acquisitions because let's be frank, which bank in the world can afford a Revolut nowadays? You know, it's, it's right. not possible. So Revolut's exit is only via IPO, unfortunately, for the investors. Um, um, <laughs> yeah, so uh, we said, hey, why not actually target the smaller group, right? The 50 to 150 million exit group which might not be very exciting for VCs because typically all the valuations that you see are always targeted or put up for like a 1 billion valuation or half a billion valuation opportunity. And uh, that does not reflect necessarily on the cap table. So we are now also investing. So we position ourselves now more like a VC private equity type of player where we have the VC mindset in the sense that we invest into the companies by backing the team, by being vision-driven, um, uh, yet with a significant bigger ownership than a typical VC would go for. So we are looking anything north of 30%, uh, whereas a typical VC would go anywhere between 10 and 25 And why 30%? It's just because the mathematics have to be also right for us, right? If we're doing an exit at $100 million, which is not great for a VC, and we have let's say 30 or 40%, that's still a significant uh, amount of money uh, that would run into uh, the company versus only owning 10%. So you're not trying to go for like the 10x return, maybe like a good, a solid 4 or 5x or something like this? Yeah, so I think it depends on the nature of the company, right? So I, I don't say that Finch is only going to do that going forward. It's like, let's say 60% of the fund will be doing these kind of deals and the remaining 40% is going to be this vision type driven, you know, go fetch the unicorn uh, type of deals in the market. Yeah, that's that's really interesting, actually. The new fund that where Christy and I are angel investors, FinTech Factory, you know, we're a, we're a very early stage <laughs> compared to you guys, but, you know, we're going to do 10 investments over the next two years and that's part of our strategy also. You know, we're not just looking for First of all, you know, we have the benefit of having a pretty good amount of leverage just because there's a government grant as part of the fund. And so, you know, we're kind of capitalizing on that and saying, okay, you know, we're looking at good business opportunities. I mean, if there's an opportunity to do, you know, three or four X in six months, like we're probably going to take that and take the safe bet because we want to have some, you know, high risk. I mean, our portfolio is small, <laughs> but <laughs> we're looking. It's it's interesting. I'm I'm kind of happy. It kind of validates what we're doing. It's interesting to hear that you guys are doing taking that kind of midline approach too, and not just going yeah. for the kind of traditional upward hockey stick one billion valuation. You know that everybody kind of sees and is maybe getting to be a little played out. Exactly, and there is a lot of competition out there, right? So it's not like that. We, I mean, we have a very strong name in the market, but still, any ambitious founder would always knock first on the doors of the Sequoias or Axels or whatever of this world right. before they might. You know, we might be in their top ten list or top five, depending uh, who it is. But uh, we're not number one. That's basically what I'm trying to say. And there are not that many unicorns out there. So. Uh, via this way, um, uh, you also are more in control of your exit and of the, the forecast because a traditional VC, when he invests, he's typically locked in for 10 years. Whereas now we typically invest in companies that are like, you know, already sort of mature. They do two to five million euros in revenue. 
growing 30 to 60% year on year, which is healthy, but not exciting for VCs. Too small for private equity players because they only look from 10 million plus uh, revenue onwards and too risky for banks from a loan perspective, given that they're still a startup. And uh, these companies typically, you know, very often what we see is that they received a lot of financing, they have messed up cap tables, you know, so you can go in there and do a healthy mix of secondaries and primaries. And uh, of course, and uh, always by incentivizing also the management team so that expectations are also aligned first from, a, from an ESO perspective or from an exit investment uh, plan. Mm-hmm. And where do you see opportunities now in fintech? Oh, any industry. Not any, any. I mean, it has to be kind of companies uh, that have like a blue ocean type of market. So KYC, we would see this, uh, this uh, be able to unfold payment industry, buy now, pay later, for example, factoring businesses in the prop tech space as well in certain areas. And obviously also in the insure tech space. Was this um, in your report or are there any other things that you want to share with us? Um, we talked about a little bit some of the trends that you guys identified, but what else can you tell us uh, some of the major findings of your state of the European fintech report? Um, I think the major findings, I think the major one was really the one why we pivoted or not necessarily pivoted, but more adapted to how the world is changing. It's like you mentioned, people are way more open to have business meetings online versus face-to-face, which A, saves a lot of time, B, is so much productiver, and C, uh, you only do the face-to-face meeting when really necessary. Of course, there is always the element of luck that is then not present or you know the type of relationship that you have then with the people that you have when you do face-to-face is obviously not the same than when you do it via, via mobile or Zoom. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And um, just to talk about a different topic, there have been like hundreds of interesting posts and comments recently on the topic of the the VC model is broken. Uh, So what's your take on this? I mean, uh, the fact that we pivoted in that sense is a bit an acknowledgement to it. So I do agree to a certain extent that it is broken. It's going to slap in one way or another, because uh, if if you look at simple economics, it is actually... Well, maybe I should not be saying this, but but whatever, it's not the best asset class to invest in as a as an investor, to be honest. Mm-hmm. It's extremely risky. Your money is stuck for the next 10 years. And if you're looking at uh, statistics, just purely statistics, a uh, majority of the firms are actually performing really badly or just return a one to two X, right? And now you ask yourself, is this worth the risk or not? You know, it's very rare that you see funds doing like the three to five X, for example, type of return or more, right? So these are typically the better ones. And because there is a 10 year gap in the market and people and VCs, they can just fundraise a new fund after another, you know, let's say um, uh, I start a fund in 2020 a 50 million euro one, I start to have like some sort of, of traction, you know, my seed funds, they also get a series A money, but I still, you know, it, it shows, hey, my money gets value, but I still did not manage to get the money out. So right. cash in the bank uh, return, you see that very rarely with VCs. And so they basically raise funds based upon capital that is not really existing, if you see what I mean. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and so you have funds that are able to raise a second fund, a third fund, and at the third fund, you know, typically that's where fund one has to have some sort of 
success, right? And if fund one does have success, that does not automatically mean that fund two and fund three will also be successful. So yeah, it's a bit of a limbo. It's a bit different from other VCs to other VCs, but I do see across many, many firms out there, if I just look through their portfolio, that it's actually not, yeah, I see it very difficult for them to uh, A, bring the money back to their LPs or B, bring satisfying returns for the LPs to also join them in the future or invest uh, even further into the BC uh, asset class. And hence the reason why we decided to move more towards this space where we currently are, simply because we're more in control of the exits and also put the exit time significantly lower. So before it was 10 years, now we are in an an exit uh, between three and five years. So given all of this and all of these challenges, what's your advice for somebody who's aspiring to become a VC? You know, somebody just getting started out, how can they be successful in this space? <laughs> um, uh, if, I, if I would know it, I would do it myself, you know? Um, <laughs> it's, it's, a very, it's, a, it's a very ad hoc job yeah. and it's a very long-term job. So it's very difficult to say whether you did a good job or not internally and externally. It's a people's business at the end of the day, right? You, you have to maintain, build relationships, maintain relationships, and try to be as humble as possible. I think it's also not easy. It's all about reputation, you know? It's also not easy to say no to founders. And like founders spend a lot of time fundraising. And if you do not respond to them correctly or, or give them nice feedback, even if you pass on the company, this person in question might think very highly you know, oh, Thierry actually is really great. He took the time to go through my deck and come back with two, three points on what I should improve or what he did not like or what did he like about the company versus being ignored or others. So my piece of advice would be then that, yeah, as a, as a VC, try to be as responsive as possible to anyone, even if it does not necessarily fit the investment criteria at your firm or you're not fully passionate about the idea. I think especially if you spend like an hour or two on the phone with this person, they definitely deserve a nice email or a phone call by explaining why and and what you think they should improve on. That's really nice words to hear (laughs) from a VC. (laughs) Sometimes you get the perspective, you know, the opposite perspective, don't waste my time. But I think you're absolutely right. Um, And it's it goes both ways. So that's great advice. Yeah, um, uh, it's kind of pointing out towards the obvious and back great founders and uh, help them leverage their uh, your network as much as possible for them to become a really successful company. But I guess that's no secret. But overall, it's a great job. Um, uh, I mean, if you enter it um, just from a learning curve perspective, I think it's an extremely interesting industry because you get very in-depth knowledge of companies and uh, also on the life cycle of these companies, right? So, so right. what are the type of problems that I don't know, a payment company faces in the seed stage uh, and at the series A stage and at the B stage, um, uh, depending obviously on the strategy of the firm. Um, I'm speaking now for Finch, where we also have board seats. So, so we see also high level and uh, detailed activities on the, from a board level, uh, which is super interesting and very intriguing. But you, you also had a startup. I mean, this is something I think about a lot. There's a lot of junior VCs who start, you know, smart people who, you know, start right after university, but they've never actually had experience as a founder. I think you do get a ton of experience just from looking at companies as a VC, you know, and you you get to see lots. It's kind of the quantity over quality. 
But maybe you can speak to that too. I mean, how, in, in your experience, how much did being a startup founder yourself inform your, you know, experience as an investor? Do you feel like that's a good practice? You know, should every VC, you know, try to do it themselves also to really be, understand kind of the pain and, you know, how it works? Um, or yeah, maybe you can speak to that. I think it everything depends on what type of strategy the VC is running. So let's say if you are going later stage like BC or in that direction, um, uh, people need to be more analytical because it's a lot of data crunching. So there is not necessarily, you, you, you look at the company from a numbers perspective. Mm. Whereas if you're in a seed stage, it's way more vision, way more founder, way more people orientated. So these are two completely different type of skills, right? And uh, as a result, um, uh, if you ask me, um, uh, is it good to start your own company? Sure. I mean, it's the hard way of learning, right? Whereas if you are at the VC, you kind of uh, get like a kind of a guidebook or get exposed to mistakes and the found that founders do, you know, and you just can learn on the back of it. So you might accelerate and be quicker uh, going from, let's say, from a VC to a founder's role than vice versa. Mm -hmm. uh, if that makes sense. I mean, it, everything depends on, on your ambitions uh, in, uh, uh, for the future. Thierry, what would you recommend to a startup founder? If you don't need to take VC money, do not take it, right? Because if you can bootstrap and get to a very nice SME or whatever, and then fundraise, you, you become so much more attractive to VCs and to other investors rather than uh, raising funds straight away. It's very easy to raise, in my opinion, a seed round or a pre-seed round uh, because the whole vision and uh, deck is based on words, you know, and an MVP. But once you raise, like, let's say, one or two million, then suddenly, uh, yeah, you have kind of have to prove for yourself. Where did this money go? What have you achieved? Suddenly we start speaking about revenue and clients. And you're you know, on a timeline. So, you have a burn rate. And, you're, you and then, and to, then suddenly you're, you're on a timeline. To, yeah. Yeah. So, so it's, it is great to take the cash in. But um, uh, yeah, I mean, you, you, you also made a, a pact with the devil, so to speak, <laughs> where you're running against time and not anymore fully in control of the situation of yourself. So um, uh, the longer you can bootstrap, the better. Right. Awesome. All right. I think we're about out of time for today. Thierry, thank you so much. This was really awesome. Um, yeah. Appreciate your insights and your candor and good luck to you all in the, in, with your third fund. And we'll be sure and follow your progress and hope to keep in touch. Awesome. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks for inviting me. And uh, yeah, looking forward to the next one. Thanks for listening. Tune in next month for another episode of Beyond Fintech, where we discuss the latest trends in investing and innovation in the financial sector and beyond.